Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, May the 29th. It is Memorial Day weekend, so happy Memorial Day to all of you. We continue looking at the book of Job. You know, last week we left off with Job surrounded by his friends who were trying to do good, who were intent on, but, but were intent on forcing him to confess a sin he was not aware he had committed. I think one of the hardest things for the for a person to bear is is misunderstanding and to have to be and be accused of having done something that you have no awareness of having done. So these three men who came to comfort Joe prove to be really one of the severest trials he's yet to to bear. Eliphaz, the oldest, spoke first, but his eloquent arguments only leave Job angry and irritated, crying out for enlightenment from his friends and relief from his pain. And then in chapter 8, the second of his friends takes up the attack. His name is Bildad the Shuite, but we call him Bildad the Brutal. Um, uh, His discourse is short, and he opens by attempting logic with Job. So picking up with Job chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Bildad's style is to ask questions to try to focus everything onto the logic of what is being discussed. He, he is the cold intellectual thinker who is debating and the, the issue at the level of his mind. And, and his first question basically is, can God do wrong? Now, that's a good question to ask. It's the basis of a lot of philosophy, of course, and from the point of logic, the answer is no, God cannot do wrong. After all, ideas of what is wrong and what is right are based on the very nature and the very character of God himself. Rightness is being like God. Wrongness is being unlike God. So to ask this question is to ask, can God be unlike himself? And the answer is, of course, no. God cannot be unlike himself. God cannot do wrong. So Bildad moves on from the basic premise to draw this logical conclusion for Job. So if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the power of their sins. When your children died, Job, on that tragic day, when the tornado blew down and killed the house and killed them all, you can only conclude it was because they did something terribly wrong. Bildad is following through the line of argument that all three of these friends pursue, that God punishes all wrong, so any tragedy is the result of some definite and perhaps hidden sin. Bildad goes on in verses 8 and 9 to, to argue that God will respond to repentance, and he, he, he brings the past experience of the fathers to confirm this. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing for our days on earth are a shadow. There's lots of truth in what these men say to Job. In fact, it would be very difficult to find anything wrong specifically in what they say. Bildad is simply reminding Job that the experience of the past confirms the fact that God blesses those who turn to him and he rebukes and punishes those who turn away. And then Bildad supports his argument further with with a lot of common sayings of the day, platitudes of the day. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of All who forget God, the hope of the godless shall perish. His argument is clearly that humanity, by nature, must have God's blessing in order to prosper. 
if he does not have it, if he has done something to cut himself off from the blessing of God, then he will simply wither like a reed without water. Bildad supports this by referring to these, these common platitudes of the day. But then he enlarges this in the verses that follow by pointing out how God always cuts off those who seem to prosper because of evil in their midst. And he, and he closes with this plea, this exhortation to Job to repent. So verses 20 through 22, behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. It's heartfelt and it's an honest exhortation to Job to own up to whatever it is he is hiding from them and from God and perhaps even from himself. And when we read the arguments of a man like this, we have to ask, well, what's wrong with this? It sounds so true and so right. It's an argument we hear repeated many times. The book of Job is very up to date. What Bildad says is true and logical and supported by really good arguments, both from the experience of the past and from the testimony of much of scripture as well. So what then is wrong? When we get to the end of the book, God appears and says that Job has been saying the right things and that the friends are wrong in what they say. But at this point, we have to ask, what's wrong with this? The answer is that there's nothing wrong with what they say. It's just that it is said in the wrong spirit. What they leave out is what makes it wrong. There are three things wrong with their approaches. First, They answer Job's words without trying to find out what produces these words. They are zeroing in on what he says without understanding his agony. Job himself has admitted previous to this that he speaks rashly, but he said it it was because of the non-ending torment that he's going through. I think any of us who have gone through deep, unrelenting pain knows how this can, can try us, can try the spirit to the point of we, we feel like we can't go any further and we become, we become testy, we become sharp. And because Job says certain things that sound extreme, his friends leap on his words and try to analyze them. There's no identification with the hurt of Job and their approaches to him. And we find this common as a common problem today. It's a common problem in marriages. Spouses often try to be coldly analytical when their spouse uh, are pressured or weary or frightened about something. They can only hear the words and try to analyze them, and nothing can destroy the other spouse faster than that. The problem is that there is no identification with the hurt. We simply deal with what people say and take no note of what lies behind the words. There is no attempt at understanding or sympathy. We become like Bildad the Shuite, coldly analytical about what is said with no understanding of the hurt. The second thing is that these friends' theology was right as far as it went, but it was incomplete. And they never seemed to be aware of that. They always spoke with the, the absolute confidence that they that what they were saying was the final word on the subject. There is no apparent understanding that perhaps there were aspects of God and dimensions to his word 
that they had not yet seen. And this is certainly true of Bildad at this point. And, and of the next friend, Zophar, their narrow, limited vision said that difficulties in a person's life were always caused by sin. Now, now many of the problems of life are caused by sin. So it is impossible to say to these men that they're wrong, but they do not see that there are other reasons why God brings us into suffering. Like many of us today, they judge only on the basis of a very rigid theology that takes note of certain aspects of the truth, but ignores others. It's like the famous story that I'm sure we've all heard of, of the blind men and the elephant. They gather around this huge animal, and by feeling it, they try to identify what an elephant is like. One of them grabbing the trunk said, well, an elephant is like a large snake. And another feeling the leg said, no, 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 the elephant is like a tree. Still another feeling the side of the animal said that an elephant was like a wall. And a fourth grabbing the tail said the elephant's like a rope. So they argue back and forth. All of them were right and all of them were wrong because they did not see the whole picture. One of the most helpful things about the book of Job is that it teaches us the danger of speaking from an incomplete theology, of trying to analyze God's workings with only a narrow understanding of how he works and what are the causes behind his actions in human life. And this produces many of the problems that we suffer with one another. We have all suffered from Job's comforters who come around positive that they know what the problem is, that they have a very rigid theological explanation of our difficulty, and it is right as far as it goes, but it does not go far enough. And the third thing that's wrong with these friends is that they never seem to refer to God for help for themselves in understanding Job's problem. They never pray with Job. They never ask God for help to open their minds and to give them understanding so that they can help their friend. The book is filled with prayers, but they are all the prayers of Job crying out to God in the midst of his sufferings. His friends never seem to feel the need for further illumination, for further more of God. Yet we cannot find much wrong with their arguments. What a testimony to us for the need to speak cautiously when we deal with deep hurts and the problems that we encounter in life. And we have seen that more than ever or as much as ever this very week, this very week. In chapters 9 and 10, we have Job's reply to Bildad. And in chapters 9, he he puts out the difficulty he has with God. And he opens with this statement of his dilemma in verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. We, 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 must, be carefully, we must carefully understand what Job's saying here. His problem is basically that he, as well as his friends, has an inadequate theology. All four of them come at life with the same basic outlook. And Job accepts the principle that these friends believe, that trouble comes only because of sin. He, he would have analyzed another's problems along the same lines. You know, if the roles were reversed, Job would have been one of the three before the trials. But his dilemma is caused by the fact that in the long, dark hours of searching his own heart, he's not been able to put his finger on any sin that he has not already dealt with, that he's confessed. 
He was a righteous and blameless man, which means that when he was aware of evil in his life, he did not try to deny it, but brought the offerings and accepted God's forgiveness. He has done that, and still the torment goes on. So his dilemma is, I'm not aware of sin in myself, but there is still, but the trouble is there, and therefore the problem must lie in God. But his problem is that he has no way to examine God And that is what he goes on to state in really very eloquent terms in verse 4. He says that God's wisdom is beyond humanity. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who, Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? And then in verse 13 through 21, this amazing statement of the sovereign, the sovereign movings of God in history. God will not turn back his anger beneath him, bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. Though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. What can I do? Job says. How can I get at this whole problem? He goes on to describe how life becomes incomprehensible where there is no understanding God. The the reference point is gone. Or, or, or uncertain or vague. We can't make sense of anything in life. And we get this effect that is had on Job because of this he's filled with bewilderment, with, filled with fear and despair. And, and out of the deep darkness that surrounds this suffering Job, a ray of light breaks through. It's the first break in Job's gloom. And he says in Job chapter 9, verse 32, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. And then comes the awareness of what's missing. And this is, this is so key in Job 9, 33, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am am not so in myself. What's needed is a mediator, an arbitrator who can come between us, who understands us both and brings us together, Job says. And for the first time in the book, we begin to see what God is after with human, with this man, 
with all of us, why he is putting him through this difficult and long trial. Because now Job begins to feel deep in his bones the nature of reality, that there is this terrible gulf between man and God that must be bridged by another We who live in the full light of the New Testament know that he is crying out and feeling deep within the need for just a mediator as Jesus Christ himself. And Job is laying the foundation here in his own understanding in the very first book ever written in Scripture for that tremendous revelation that comes in the New Testament that God becomes man. God takes our place, lives as we live, feels as we feel, and solves the great problem between us and God and brings the two, God and man, together. And for the first time in Job, we begin to sense what God is driving at. There's a verse in Psalm 119, verse 71, that says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. We can learn theology out of a book, and we can study it and get it clear in our mind, but until we go through the hurts and the difficulties and the trials of life, we never really understand what the truth is. It takes suffering to get a clear vision of what God is saying to us. And that is what the book of Job is all about. And then in chapter 10, the darkness comes, closes in again around Job. And once again, his torment drives him into prayer. And this chapter is breathed out before God and in the presence of his friends. And there's two things that Job asks in this prayer. In verse two, he says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. That, that's the heart of his cry in the first part of this chapter. Let me, let me know what is wrong. And then in verse 20, he cries to God, are, are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer. So his prayer consists of these two cries. Let me know or else leave me alone, one or the other. And I think anyone who's gone through suffering knows that this is often the feeling. Lord, explain this to me. Let me know what's going on. Or if you choose to let it go on, then just please just leave me alone. And then in verse 17 of chapter 10, uh, he's searching for answers, examining all the possibilities that might explain why he's going through this, this torment, this torture. And as we look at these, we see that they reflect the questions that every sufferer feels when they are going through a difficult time. And then in chapter 10, verse 3, Job says, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? That is, do you get some kind of pleasure out of this? Is this, is that why you put me through this? this? Does it give you some kind of delight? I, I don't think that Job is being sarcastic. I think he is really asking, is God that kind of a being that this pleases him? And if that is the explanation, at least I am contributing to the pleasure of God by going through something like this. Wow. He's looking for meaning in his suffering. And then in verses four through seven, he asks, have, have, you, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand? He's asking, do you somehow limit yourself to, to man's circumstances and capabilities? Is that why you put me through this? Somehow, despite your wisdom and your knowledge and your might far beyond humanity, do do you limit yourself, put yourself where we are and and then let yourself act and think like, like we would think is that, is that's what's behind this. 
I think here we have some implications of, of the incarnation, that, that great underlying truth of the entire New Testament, that God somehow did limit himself and became a man and put himself in our place. And Job is asking, is, is that why we go through suffering? Verses 8 through 13, he argues, can it be reasonable? You made me, you formed me, and now you tear me apart. Is that a reasonable thing to do? You who put me together are now destroying me. Is that logical? Is that right? And then in 14 through 17, he asked the question, what can I do? What recourse can I have or do I have? How can I please you or change in such a way as to stop the suffering? If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction and where my and were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. And then he closes in verse 17. You renew your witnesses against me and you increase your vexation towards me. You bring fresh troops against me. What can I do? Where can I turn? As we go through that kind of, of a list, we see that every every argument that has ever occurred to to suffering believer is brought out here and in the book of Job. Every nuance of suffering, whether it's mental or physical, is explored to its limit in this book. All the tormenting questions are asked. All the haunting dilemmas are faced so that anyone going through suffering will find that Job has felt whatever they have and has articulated it incredibly eloquently. The questions are not answered at this point. They will be answered before we're through, but in a way that we would not anticipate in reading in the reading of the story. So because of the silence of God, Job closes this chapter by crying out in verses 18 to 22, leave me alone. Life is useless. Death is but, but darkness. Whatever it is, anything is better than this. Just leave me alone. Now in chapter 11, Zophar comes onto the scene and we'll call him Zophar the Zealous. He, he moves up to bat and he opens with a scorching rebuke to Job's sinful folly as he sees it. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and he would tell you the secrets of wisdom for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. We can almost see Zophar shaking his fist in righteousness and righteous indignation to Job. He, he accuses Job of wordiness, of foolishness, of mockery, of self-righteousness, smugness. He says that Job's punishment is richly deserved, that he is only getting what is coming to him and not even all of that. What a sweetheart this guy is, right? And then he goes on in verse 7 through 12 to describe Job's stupid ignorance in contrast to, to God's deep wisdom. He, he, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? It's, it's, it's measures longer than the sea, broader than the sea. If he passes through in prisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity, he will not consider it. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. That is, it will never happen. Anybody as stupid as you, Job, will never get any help. 
He lays it on heavy and hard. And then he closes with this vivid description of shining possibilities that were ahead. If Job were to only repent, if you set your heart right, and if iniquity is in your hand, surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure. You'll forget your misery and your life will be brighter than the noonday. And, and you will have confidence. You'll be protected. You will lie down and you'll not be afraid. Then, then a sharp word of warning at the end, but the eyes of the wicked will fail all all way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last. And once again, there's, there's no, there's no identifying with Job's hurt. There's no sense of empathy of trying to feel with him, the awful torment of his mind and the spirit that presses him, that squeezes him and drags him through uh, these cries into the darkness. These men just lay it on him. They, they only see cold analytical, analytical logic. And Zophar, of course, speaks with a great deal of passion and force, but there's no sense of offering understanding and help. Simply the laying on of passionate uh, discourse. And once again, these men seem to approach the whole problem from purely a theological point of view. And, and that this is the difference between theology and the experience of a man or a woman taught by the Spirit. Theology can be very clear and right, but it's all in the head. And when we are dealing with the hurting and problems of life, we must add a deeper dimension. And that compassion that Jesus manifested, that sympathy of touch that identified with the hurt and opened the door of the spirit to receiving what light might be given through words. And the first round ends with Job's sarcastic defense in chapters 12 through 14. The, the, the first part is Job's answer to his friends. And the second is his prayer before God. And, and we'll leave that prayer for, for later on for next week. But in chapter 12, Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. We know exactly how we felt. These men had all the answers. They knew all the problems, Job says. And when you pass from the scene, there's not going to be anything left. It's going to all die with you. You know it all. And then from verse three to the end of the chapter, he points out that they deal with elementary truths, things that anybody could know. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Why? Who does not know these things? Um, you haven't helped me a bit, Job says. Anyone knows this. You haven't added anything. And, th- and then he begins to detail it. He, you know, I'm the laughing stock to my friends. I who called God and he answered me. I'm just a blameless man, a laughing stock. Why? Because in in the thought of one who is at ease, there's no contempt for misfortune. You don't understand me because you've never been there. You haven't felt what I felt. And then Job says, you you haven't faced all the facts. You tell me God always punishes unrighteousness, but look around you. There, There are open idolaters who bring their idols in their hands. There are robbers living at peace who dwell secure. God is not punishing them. Life itself testifies that you are wrong. And then in chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, he he says that nature confirms it. God deals as he pleases. There's no way of predicting his actions. And then finally, in a moving, beautiful passage filled with great passion force, Job shows in chapter 12, verses 13 through 25, that he understands God just as well as they do. And and I'm not going to take time to read that passage, but I I hope that you might do it because it it is amazing. It is a beautiful language and the might and the wisdom of God. But then in chapter three, Job continues his defense before these men. He says the words have not helped. Their silence would help more. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. 
And then in verse 6 through 12, he tells them that if God judges him, he will judge them. And if he overwhelms him, he will overwhelm them also. They are exact. They are in exactly the same boat. So his final plea is to leave them alone, that they that he might come before God himself and debate the whole matter. Let me have silence, and I'll speak. Why why should why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he would slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Verse 15 is, is translated quite differently in the King James Version. This is, this is the famous passage often quoted from Job, from Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is a great cry of hope and trust, but it's not really what Job said. What he said is best translated in the RSV Version. Behold, he will slay me. I have no hope, yet I will defend my ways to his face. He is determined, Job says, to defend himself. He expresses one bit of hope in verse 16. This will be my salvation that a godless man will not come before him. If I'm really godless, I will not get a chance to come before him. But he, but if he will give me a chance, I have my case all prepared. And, and the very fact that he will listen to me indicates that at least I have a chance. So he concludes in verse 17, listen carefully to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know I will be vindicated. Who is there that will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Beginning at verse 20 through the rest of the chapter and through chapter 14, Job represents the case that he has prepared before God. And he tells us what he would say if he, if he could talk to God. And we're going to leave that out for, for next time. But here he simply makes a plea that they stop arguing and listen to him and help him by their silence, if not by any, anything else. Surely, if nothing else, this book of Job should help us to be careful in our approach to the suffering of others so that we don't add to it. These friends of Job, so rigid in their theology, so sure that they're right, and so blind to the great dimensions of God that neither they nor Job understand that they're only increasing the problems for this man. And I think this is partly why Scripture exhorts us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Romans 12, 15. Amen, and God bless.